ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. ETF investing never stops evolving. And thankfully for investors, it's gone far beyond passively tracking index returns. John Hancock Investment Management's Active Fixed Income ETFs are backed by deep research from Manulife Investment Management and have the flexibility to navigate today's shifting market environment. Find out how our Active Fixed Income ETFs can help you prepare for whatever lies ahead. Learn more at jhinvestments.com ETF. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. You can find a prospectus at jhinvestments.com. The prospectus includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should carefully consider before investing. John Hancock's fixed income ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC in the United States and are sub-advised by Manulife Investment Management US LLC. Foresight is not affiliated with John Hancock Investment Management Distributors LLC or Manulife Investment Management US LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Brett Winton, Chief Futurist at ARK Invest, who has had quite the uh, ride over the past several years. They had about $3 billion in assets in January 2020. They grew that to over $60 billion in February of last year, $60 billion. And now they're currently at around $13.5 billion in U.S. listed ETFs. And obviously, a lot of that ride, when you start to look at it, both up and down, has been performance-driven, right? ARK is uh, well-known for focusing on disruptive innovation, owning stocks of companies involved in areas like genomics and blockchain and artificial intelligence. And those stocks skyrocketed in 2020, and then it's been a pretty tough uh, uphill climb uh, overall since about February of uh, last year. Now, to ARK's credit, at least in my opinion, they've stuck to their approach. Investors know exactly what they're going to get from ARK ETFs. And that's why I believe, uh, despite some of the barbs that people throw at ARK and Kathy Wood, I think they're set up for longer term success. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation because you're going to get to hear firsthand what this entire ride has been like over the past several years and what uh, Brett sees moving forward. Should be a fantastic chat. Also joining me this week will be Sylvia Jablonski, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Defiance ETFs, who themselves uh, offer a very unique lineup of thematic ETFs. And back in September, they launched the Defiance Daily Short Digitizing the Economy ETF, ticker IBIT, I-B-I-T, which is an inverse blockchain ETF. And obviously, with everything going on in crypto, uh, no surprise, this is off to a nice start performance-wise. Now, interestingly, Defiance also offers long exposure to this space through the Defiance Digital Revolution ETF, ticker NFTs, great ticker symbol. So uh, we'll dive into both of those ETFs and also discuss how Sylvia and Defiance views thematic ETFs overall. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. She is our uh, resident energy sector expert. And we're going to do a little recap of energy in uh, 2022 and look ahead to 2023. So let's do that right now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends. Stacy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. It's great to be with you. Okay, so you joined me a couple of months ago, and at that time, XLE, the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, that was up about uh, 50% on the year. And actually, if we were to go back just a few weeks prior to that, uh, at the end of September, XLE was up about 30%. If you look now, XLE is currently sitting uh, pretty close to its high for the year, up about 65%. And that's after a couple of uh, pretty rough days. So to start, I'd love to just get your take on some of the drivers here more recently, because that's a pretty big move in a, uh, a short amount of time. What has been happening here? Yeah, sure. So if you, you know, kind of looking back to the end of September, you know, what happened in early October was we had an OPEC plus meeting um, where they announced a headline cut of 2 million barrels per day. And oil prices saw a nice move up leading up to the meeting and then after the meeting. Um, so essentially in a week, you know, U.S. benchmark oil prices went from below $80 a barrel to above $90 per barrel. Um, and you saw kind of this corresponding move in the XLE uh, or just energy stocks broadly during that period. Um, and I think to me, you know, the biggest takeaway from the OPEC Plus meeting is that they are willing to intervene to support oil markets, um, even at a very high political cost. So to me, if you're an energy investor, that was really kind of the ideal outcome. Um, and I think the OPEC Plus meeting was a source of kind of confidence and comfort um, because you have you know, some assurance that OPEC Plus is, is willing to kind of step in and intervene if they think oil prices are going too low. Um, so energy stocks started to do very well after that. Um, and then we got into 3Q earnings season for the energy space. We started getting those results from kind of mid-October to mid-November. Um, and that kept kind of pushing the space higher. Uh, generally saw good results. Um, you saw good um, reinforcement of the focus on free cash flow and returning cash to investors. And then just in November in general, we saw you know, pretty strong equity market um, overall. I think the S&P 500 was up about 6%. Um, energy actually lagged that a little bit, but uh, energy held up you know, pretty well despite oil prices actually getting worse in November. So um, overall, I think that combination of kind of the OPEC plus meeting um, driving oil prices higher and, and energy trading higher into earnings, and then you know just the broader market improving has helped energy stocks here lately. To your last point, with uh, the price of oil falling back here a little bit more recently, if we were to widen out the lens and look at the price of uh, crude oil, it's gone from about $120 a, a barrel in May to around $80 now. And we can certainly talk about some of the specific drivers there, but why do you think there's been this continued uh, strength uh, or resilience in energy stocks and an ETF like XLE, despite the weakness in oil prices? Well, I think to start, you know, there's different variables that have weighed on crude. Um, and there's been, you know, issues, in, I think, in general, kind of with crude markets this year and lower liquidity and fewer people participating in that market. And so you could say maybe that oil markets have been a little bit distorted. But, you know, from an oil perspective, a lot of what we've seen is concerns around a recession and what that means for oil demand. Um, there's been a lot of concern around Chinese demand and when will China reopen and when will we see, um, you know, Chinese demand for oil meaningfully improve. And then, you know, you've had um, releases from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, other countries, you know, participating in that as well with doing strategic releases. And that's putting more barrels on the market. Um, meanwhile, I think Russian exports have probably been more resilient than people would have thought um, you know, earlier this year. So that combination of kind of demand concerns on the one hand and then incremental supply coming on the market um, from the strategic petroleum releases and you know, Russian exports probably being resilient, I think all of that has led to more subdued oil prices. Um, but to your point, you know, energy stocks have done you know, very well despite all of this. And so I think there's a couple factors that have helped energy stocks. Um, I talked about strong earnings results, good execution, 
um, companies are generating really compelling free cash flow, and they're returning that excess to shareholders through dividend and buybacks. Um, I think when we see days of equity weakness like we've seen here lately, I think you know, energy companies are stepping in and probably buying back some of their shares. And I think to some extent investors may be doing that too. Um, I think this was a space that a lot of people underowned and may still be trying to get some exposure to. Um, oil, you know, of course, tends to be you know, more volatile in either direction. Um, and we've seen you know, good examples this year of oil falling and energy stocks either rising or, you know, holding up really well in spite of that. So you know, there's a kind of important point to make or distinction to be made between what oil is doing and what energy stocks are doing. And there's also a big difference in terms of you know, where oil is trading and what energy stocks are pricing in, right? When we see oil go to 120, um, energy stocks aren't pricing in 120 for the long term. Uh, Sell-side analysts aren't plugging 120 into their model for the next several quarters. Um, so we see that big move in oil from you know about 120 to about 180, but what's actually been priced into energy stocks has probably not moved that much, and it's probably been sitting around you know seventy dollars a barrel through all of this. Um, so I think those are some of the key points to kind of keep in mind when you're looking at what oil's done and what energy stocks have done. I, I mentioned sort of uh, recapping 2022 this week in the energy sector, and w- with that backdrop you just gave, I'm curious if you look at the ETF landscape. Overall, besides XLE, are there any other uh, energy-related ETFs that stand out to you this year as you look back on everything that we've seen in this space? Yeah, you know, it's been kind of an interesting year because your, you know, broad kind of low-cost energy ETFs are actually the ones that have done, you know, really well. So XLE, uh, the Vanguard Energy ETF, VDE, um, both of those are up just over 62% through yesterday. Um, they're narrowly outperforming the iShares U.S. Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, ticker IEO, which is up about 61%. Um, and then the VanEck Oil Services ETF, OIH, is, uh, you know, right there up about 59%. Um, interestingly, you know, the Spider S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, XOP, that's kind of the largest uh, ETF focused on exploration and production companies. That's only up about 50%. Um, and I think some of that has to do with its equal weighting scheme, um, whereas the iShares uh, Exploration Production ETF is market cap weighted. And so I think that helps kind of explain some of the performance difference there. But um, what's interesting to me is, you know, you have Exxon this year up almost 80%. So when you look at XLE and VDE, they have, you know, more than 20% of weighting to Exxon. Um, you know, they're certainly benefiting from that really strong year for Exxon. And I think, you know, come credit to Exxon's management team for a good year and good results. Um, but also, I think a lot of times when people want energy exposure, Exxon and Chevron are, are the default there. So um, I think that's helped lead to, you know, really strong years for just these broad energy ETFs that are market cap weighted like XLE and BDE. Um, you know, interestingly, from a flow perspective, though, um, flows for both of those products haven't really been that great. You know, we've seen hundreds of millions in outflows this year. Um, interestingly enough, you know, the Alarian MLP ETF, which is kind of the third largest energy ETF, um, has seen, you know, pretty significant inflows this year, about a half a billion. Um, but it's up, you know, less than half of, of what XLE and BDE are up. Um, so just kind of an interesting dynamic, I think, across the board in terms of what we're seeing for performance and kind of the drivers behind those um, and what that means for flows. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think, you know, some of the clean energy ETFs stand out for just having, you know, kind of weak years. Um, I think, you know, some are flat at best, down, others down about 15% or more, so kind of more in line with the broader market. Um, and that being despite, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which I think just kind of highlights, you know, the challenging market backdrop that we're in and rising interest rate environment. But um, I think that's the the sum of kind of what's been really interesting to me so far this year from a performance standpoint. No, it's a great summary. And I think we talked about this uh, a couple of months ago. But what's interesting to me is that if you look at the disparity in performance between, say, the energy sector in the technology sector, you're talking about a huge delta there. And to your point, I don't know that we've seen the level of interest in energy ETFs that I would have expected given that mm-hmm. outperformance. And so it'll be interesting to see if that translates moving forward. Uh, I, I know there can be more uh, what I'll call tactical money 
that moves in and out of the energy space. Uh, but I, I guess because of that, I'm just surprised we haven't seen greater inflows. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I, I guess on that note, I mean, as we look ahead to uh, 2023 and your overall outlook on the energy space moving forward, I, I guess let's start on the bull side of the uh, of the equation. What is the bullish case for energy? Do you think there's still room to uh, to run here performance-wise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is still room to run. Um, you know, this isn't an expensive space. Um, if we look at, you know, MLPs, for example, they're still 57% below their high from September 2014. So before we kind of saw, um, you know, this price war with OPEC and, and you know, this um, large down move in, in oil years and years ago. Um, and they're still trading, you know, two turns below their 10-year average, you know, forward EV to EBITDA multiple. Um, and that's true of our broader midstream indexes as well. You, know, you still see a pretty significant discount relative to the historical averages. Um, I think, you know, the bull case here, if, if you think inflation is still going to be an issue, you know, energy tends to do well in inflationary environments. You have that real asset exposure, that commodity exposure. Um, I think globally, energy markets are likely to remain tight. Um, you know, there was a lot of concern around Europe heading into this winter. Um, that's not just a one-time event. I think this is going to be a repeating issue where we're concerned about, you know, energy supplies because of the changing dynamic we have with Russia now. And um, so I think, you know, from a, a bull perspective, I think if you think inflation is going to continue to be an issue, if you're worried about rising interest rates, um, I think the energy space can continue to work, and, and you don't necessarily need oil to go back to 120 for this space to work, and that's what we've seen, you know, demonstrated um, already this year. Well, that's a good segue to the the bearish side of the equation, because again, we noted how the price of oil has gone from a 120 to to roughly 80 a barrel, but you also did a good job of highlighting this resilience in uh, in energy stocks. But if you look at the bearish case, what are some potential risks to the space, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think you know people are still um, concerned or would be concerned about a recession. Uh, diesel demand tends to fall with a slower economy. And that lower oil demand tends to weigh on prices. Um, you know, we saw energy trade pretty weak in you know, June and July around recession concerns. Um, so the space is not necessarily immune if we see you know, this, this bigger slowdown for the global economy. Um, we would say the potential offset to that is OPEC plus you know, stepping in and, and cutting production to support oil prices. Uh, but still, I think you know, a recession is probably um, the risk that's on the forefront of everybody's mind. Um, I think to you know, the point you made earlier, we've talked about how you know, energy has done you know, so much better than tech and some of these growth sectors. But I think if we get to a point where people think interest rates have peaked, um, inflation becomes less of a worry, you know, there's that risk that energy starts to lose kind of that interest in those flows. Um, and that could be, you know, another risk for this space. So those to me, I think, are, are the two big risks, the recession and then just kind of a general loss of, of interest or, or flows in the space due to just kind of a changing macro backdrop. We've had sort of a uh, oil focus here today. Is there anything you would note specifically regarding natural gas and natural gas prices on either the bullish or, or bearish side moving forward? Yeah, I mean, from a natural gas perspective, I think the short term in the U.S. is all about weather and what's going to happen with this restart of Freeport LNG. Um, Freeport's an LNG export facility that came offline in June, um, and it's supposed to kind of be starting back up around year in and then kind of gradually ramping up to about 2 billion cubic feet per day, um, which is you know, pretty significant in terms of kind of the, the U.S. market. Um, so those are kind of the, the variables that I think people are, are watching. You know, if you look what we've seen so far this month in December, you know, natural gas prices are off about 20 percent because of warm weather and a delay to the restart of Freeport LNG. Um, so those are kind of the near-term issues that I think are going to drive prices. Weather is always a big deal in the winter. Um, but longer term, you know, I think we see demand pools from LNG export facilities and, you know, natural gas producers in the U.S. maintaining pretty good discipline from a production standpoint. And I think that combination results in a pretty tight natural gas market in the U.S. Um, and prices that are, you know, above the range of, you know, 2 to $3 that we saw for much of the last decade. So, 
even though you know, natural gas prices in the U.S. are well off highs that we saw kind of in August, September of this year, um, prices today are still you know much better than what we've seen for a lot of the last decade. So I think there's still a very good story around natural gas in the U.S. Stacy, just a couple of minutes left here. If we bring this all back to ETFs, obviously investors can play uh, either of your scenarios using ETFs, right? Uh, they, they can play either the bearish side or the bullish side. Are there any in particular that you would highlight for uh, both bearish investors and then also for more uh, aggressive investors who still want exposure to energy in 2023? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you want a, more of a, a swing for the fences approach, then you probably want to focus on exploration and production ETFs. Um, like the iShares U.S. Oil and Gas Exploration Production ETF, IEO, or like XOP. Um, you Having more commodity exposure tends to give you more upside if you think commodities are going to be rallying uh, next year. Um, if you want energy exposure but you want to kind of mitigate some of your downside risk, uh, if we have a recession or if oil prices fall further, um, then the energy infrastructure space can be a great way to get that energy exposure but maybe not as have as much volatility, and you'll get nice income with that as well. Um, so Vetify owns and administers the Alarian Index Suite. There are two ETFs that track Alarian indexes, uh, the MLP-focused Alarian MLP ETF, which I mentioned earlier, ticker AMLP. Um, MLPs, you know, for what it's worth, are yielding just over 7% right now, so it can be uh, a good income vehicle. Um, and then the other ETF is the Alarian Energy Infrastructure ETF, ticker ENFR, uh, which is based on an index that is 25% MLPs and 75% U.S. and Canadian midstream companies. Um, and that index is yielding just under 6%. So um, for those who are looking for energy exposure, but maybe with a little less heartburn or they want some more income, the energy infrastructure space can be a great option for that. Well, Stacey, excellent insight as always this week. I'm not sure anyone knows this space better than you, combining both energy and ETFs. If I don't talk to you uh, before, then I hope you and your family enjoy the uh, holiday season. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. You too. Appreciate it. That was Stacey Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. Web3 is one of the world's fastest growing industries, and the SoFi Web3 ETF is designed to make it easier than ever for investors to put their dollars into the technology they're most excited about. The SoFi Web3 ETF is the first Web3 fund on the market, and it provides investors with access to the companies powering the next tech revolution and driving a decentralized approach to the internet, such as the metaverse and artificial intelligence. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus. A prospectus may be obtained by visiting SoFi Web3 ETF at www.sofi.com slash invest slash ETF slash TWeb. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. My next guest is Brett Winton, Chief Futurist at ARK Invest, who currently offers eight ETFs in the U.S., about $13.5 billion in assets. That's, of course, led by their flagship fund, the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK. And Brett is now on the line with me. Brett, great to uh, finally connect. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay, so as I understand it, you have been with ARC uh, since the very beginning, all the way back to uh, 2014. You actually came over from uh, Alliance Bernstein with Kathy Wood to start up the firm. And I thought, despite uh, all of the media coverage that ARC gets, which uh, perhaps we can touch on that a little bit, I'm not sure many people have heard the story of what things were like back in those uh, earliest days. So can you maybe spend a few minutes just talking uh, about that, taking us back to that time? What was it like trying to get the firm off the ground? Does that now seem like uh, an eternity ago? <laughs> it does seem like a lot has happened over the past uh, eight years. Um, and 
you know, it's at the very beginning or from the beginning and always we focused on disruptive technology and the the early, you know, part of the firm, including, you know, getting pre-launching the ETF was uh, defining and assessing uh, the technologies that we're interested in from a top-down way, you know, setting up the the research architecture, including, you know, hiring analysts that are focused on technologies rather than on sectors, uh, and and beginning to build out the cost decline work that's defined kind of the way we've underwritten positions from here to there. And we were scrappy. We are scrappy then, and, and we're scrappy now. I mean, I think part of what's unique about ARC and everybody who visits us or, or works for us uh, mentioned is, is how um, the the... <laughs> Everybody works really hard and really believes in the mission of the organization, which is to provide, you know, investors with with really pure access to disruptive technology in a unique time and technological economic history. And um, so we've maintained kind of the the a lot has changed between eight years ago and today. The the culture of what we're doing and and the reason why we're doing it uh, feels very very similar from here to there. Um, so it. Yeah, and I, I guess on that note, I mean, if we do fast forward to today, I think most investors, uh, certainly listeners of this podcast, they know the story of ARC over the past several years, where you saw an absolutely historic rise, uh, both in performance of your funds and assets under management in, in 2020. And then since about February of last year, it's been uh, challenging, right? The market environment has shifted. Uh, disruptive innovation stocks as a whole haven't fared well with rising interest rates. And we can talk more about that specifically. But what has that ride been like over the past several years? I mean, in some ways, it's been, well, on the ride up, I will admit I did not feel comfortable with the way the um, companies were all correlated with each other. Uh, as in, you know, there were days where companies that had nothing to do with each other were each up five or six percent. Uh, and same with the ride down. I think that, you know, the it's clear that the, the macro forces are really guiding the flows in and out of innovation positions uh, indiscriminately. Uh, and so the um, uh, for us, both internally and, and how I think about assets and markets, um, we have the luxury of having a longer-term point of view in that we underwrite all our positions over five years, uh, and it's not that a single quarter causes us to totally change our view on, you know, what the future is going to look like. Uh, and so the the we can not be ignorant of, but we can kind of mute our reaction to to the underlying market performance. Um, I think that the um, my belief is that we've never been in a more exciting time for technology. Uh, and so often that will result in like quasi manias and people kind of like taking leverage to pile into assets. But over the course of a business cycle, you know, we think that these technologies are going to be worth, uh, if, if not like more than an order of magnitude, more than, than they're worth today. In fact, almost, a, you know, uh, quite a bit more, and so the um, it's in some ways a luxury to have that perspective because then the way in which the the voting machine, which is the market in the short term, works can you know can be a source of fascination, but you know ultimately in the moment in time it either gives you a good inefficient price on the asset or a fully valued price, in which case you need to be more conservative. And today it's a great price. Yeah, so let's talk more about that. And if we were to use the ARK Innovation ETF as an example, ticker ARKK, and, and maybe discuss that in the context of the broader in, uh, market environment, I'd love to hear more about what you think have been some of the specific negative drivers. So you mentioned that you know the, the, the correlation of some of these stocks uh, w w was tight on the way up, but also on the way down. But look, if you look at performance, it's no secret. ARKK is down about 60% this year. It's down around 75% since February of last year. What has happened here overall, specifically? Yeah, if you look at kind of correlation to the moves in the strategy on a daily basis, it's very highly correlated with um, you know, the short-term interest rates. And, uh, you know, it's no secret either that the Fed has been raising rates aggressively. Um, I think that, it, you know, history may look back on this and be like, what were they doing? 
um, given that they are still extremely responsive to um, the CPI, which includes a bunch of data, which is obviously lagged, including the, including the housing component. Uh, and I think that you'll see um, a bunch of, you know, once once the houses being built today come to market, there's going to be a real uh, demand pocket that arises given where interest rates are and, and the cost of housing. Uh, on top of which, you know, the, um, the, the motor vehicle space, another big component of the CPI, if you think about what happens when somebody buys an electric vehicle like a Tesla, they end up spending 50% more upfront for the car uh, for, on a sticker price basis, but their total cost of ownership relative to, say, a Toyota Camry, if you're buying a Model 3, is the same. Meaning that, um, and that's amortizing the upfront cost across the, you know, five years. Uh, so what that means is actually the, the electric vehicle purchase will look very inflationary today, but it will become very deflationary in the future when people are paying, you know, for electrons rather than, than, um, oil molecules, uh, in order to power their vehicle and spending less on maintenance, um, to, to keep it running. Uh, and so that, inflation um, signal that the Fed has responded to has clearly caused the underperformance in our fund. Uh, we think that technology erodes kind of those inflation forces and actually is going to pr- prove to be, you know, quite deflationary over the next few years. Uh, and that that's going to cause you know, not only the Fed to, to ease off on tightening, but actually they'll, they'll be way too tight and they'll have to aggressively loosen given what's happening macroeconomically and overall. And, and then the other, you know, I'd say inflation input is, is all of the supply chain disruption, including, you know, COVID and, and um, the lease and lag from COVID plus the, the war in Ukraine. And, and again, the um, technology allows for more effective insuring or onshoring of manufacturing. It allows for um, companies like Tesla to navigate around um, kind of chips and part shortages and continue to produce vehicles. So I think that, you know, ultimately we'll look back on this as, hey, these were a set of short-term macroeconomic problems and that technology provided a lot of the solutions. And then when when a company or, or an industry provides a lot of solutions to the economy, it tends to accrue a lot of value. And so that's why I think that kind of as the, the macro cycle resolves, uh, you, you actually will have not only a relief rally in the kind of innovation names that we're invested in, but actually a substantial gain of share of, of technology names from kind of traditional companies. You mentioned the uh, Fed, and, and as we start thinking about their impact on this entire macro cycle, I know Kathy Wood penned an open letter to them where, in a nutshell, she said the Fed is making a policy error, right? She was pretty blunt about it. She said they're going to cause deflation. Do you want to expand on that at all and, and what some of the potential ramifications of that could be? Well, if you look back to um, 1929, even, uh, the Fed um, was worried then about call it speculation in financial markets, and they, they tried to squelch it by raising rates and, and thereby tighten the money supply so severely um, that, that they tipped us straight into the Great Recession. And so the fear is that um, the monetary policy is is sticky. And if you um, raise rates to a certain level, you can kind of choke off and kill kill the black magic of consumer demand uh, in a way that is that is much more persistent than the inflation bulge that has worked its way through the system as a result of supply chain um issues primarily and, and, you know, excess savings and consumers' bank accounts. Um, I, I think that the, the, um, the fact that the Fed very clearly is using backward-looking indicators to try to, try to inform its money supply decisions um, is going to prove to be a mistake when anybody who can do math can see that, um, you know, housing um, CPI is going to come through at a much lower level than it's being printed at today, just mathematically. Uh, and so it seems absurd and like they're playing a, a game of, of optics and politics um, to continue to tighten as uh, it's evident that, that the inflation statistics are going to come in much lighter. Uh, and so, um, yeah, the concern is that, that you really damage a lot of people's lives by sending them 
unnecessarily uh, into um, filing unemployment claims and and ultimately hurting you know production and growth, uh, which benefits everyone. If the Fed is making a policy error, which I think a lot of people would agree with you, does that impact the decision making around what goes in? to the ARK ETF portfolios at all. We can talk ARKK specifically. I, you know, I look at the top five holdings, Zoom, Tesla, Roku, Exact Science, uh, Sciences, Block. Do, does the Fed have any impact around the decision-making there, or are you just, you're going to hold the line on disruptive innovation no matter what? Yeah, what we do for our clients is we provide them with concentrated ex- exposure to disruptive innovation. And the way, and so we, we're, we've stuck to that throughout this cycle, as we will through every cycle. We believe that's our call, that's our economic job is to is to make sure that um, they have that exposure. I think that there's a risk that clients face where um, they are unintentionally short innovation because the Fed has scared them into index exposures that are probably, you know, and, and core benchmark exposures to, to pull in risk uh, that probably exposes them to a series of fixed assets that are, are levered and may actually be disrupted by technology itself. So there's um, almost 400, or it's roughly $400 billion in fixed line rail assets in the U.S. And we think EV autonomous trucks, the likes of which uh, Tesla just uh, delivered their first one, are, are going to price competitive with freight rail uh, at maturity. And so uh, freight rail lines that have, you know, those are in publicly listed companies and they have debt against those rail, which, you know, is no surprise since the rail lines kick off a ton of cash flow. Uh, suddenly they could be put in distress. Uh, and so if you have that kind of damage residing in your portfolio, you better own the um, kind of innovation platform that's going to accrue a lot of value in the event that it cut, uh, disrupts that core business. Um, so in, on the inflation side or on our reaction to the macro cycle side, we tend to, as uh, the market is in more of a risk-off period, we'll allow the number of names in the portfolio to expand uh, and then we concentrate the portfolio as the market moves into, um, or I may have inverted that, but as the market sells off, we tend to concentrate the portfolio. And so now we have, you'll see it's, you know, a little more than 30 names in the portfolio, whereas as peak, at peak, we might get up to 58 or, or 60. Uh, and so then that's to really concentrate into our highest conviction names that we think are the most misunderstood. Um, Along the way, we are very careful about underwriting balance sheet risks on the companies and looking at kind of the cash needs that the companies have, whether or not they have to come to the market for financing. Uh, we believe on average the companies in our portfolio have, have three years of cash runway, so they can actually pretty easily navigate past the, um, the, the macro cycle, in our view. And then, the, you know, if you look at a company like Zoom, this is a massively um, cash flow generative company. They're trading at are, you know, roughly 7.5% cash flow yield to enterprise value. So clearly that company's been treating, been being treated as if it's ex-growth. Um, and, and we think that they're, you know, they've only penetrated their, their addressable market at, in a single digit percentages and that um, we're in a, in a giant rip and replace cycle of, of traditional phone IT in the enterprise and Zoom is um, spearheading that. So um, there's a lot of, uh, companies within the portfolio where where we think we're getting a great deal and and that's part of why I love talking to clients balance because it's it's an amazing time to expose yourself to innovation in an aggressive way I think it's the kind of move that will pay um, pay your portfolio and your clients portfolios back for generations um, so that's why I think it's it's actually a great time to be in the market right now. I, I think a lot of investors are pretty familiar with ARKK, but you have these five what I'll call innovation sleeves in artificial intelligence, energy storage, robotics, DNA sequencing, and blockchain technology. Are those five still the, the overall focus of that fund? Yes. So um, the, the, we call them innovation platforms. And so between cryptocurrency, call it multi-omic sequencing, um, the um, – energy storage, including how it's kind of transforming the mobility space, our artificial intelligence, 
uh, in robotics that, that future historians will look back on this moment and say, oh my gosh, all those technologies were kind of entering the marketplace at the same time in the same business cycle. And, and um, just one of them would be, you know, equivalent to kind of the computer or the internet in terms of the scale of this innovation. And so having five at this investable sweet spot is, is really, we think, historically unprecedented. Uh, and the other thing I'll say is that the these technologies are not kind of static individual buckets, but they're converging in profoundly interesting ways. The, the um, PacBio, uh, the gene sequencing company, its most its latest instrument, which um, delivers you know extremely inexpensive long read sequencing of DNA, includes in the instrument an NVIDIA chip uh, to run the AI models that help them stitch together the DNA right off the back of that sequencer. And the AI models they're using are the same type of models that were only just discovered a few years ago to be extremely useful for interpreting natural language and doing language generation, which you can see the results of today. And, and, and so kind of because particularly AI is moving to so quickly, it actually creates um, business opportunity for all of the innovations that we focus on. There's there's a huge amount of convergence and compounding that's happening across innovations. Uh, and so that flagship portfolio, which provides exposure to all of the innovations, I think is is a really interesting spot to play. And we have you know underlying um, ETFs like ArcG, which is which is focused more on the multiomics space or the genomic space. Uh, and there, the idea is, hey, you know, you should want to, you should be able to live long and prosper. People don't understand that they're actually short longevity. Like, if 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 an investor lives a long time, that's a problem for their pocketbook. Uh, and so, you should own the the platforms that are that are going to accrue a lot of value in the event that they deliver the longevity to the world that the world wants. Uh, and and so, um, you know, there's vertical specific ETFs that take advantage of some of those innovation platforms more directly uh, insofar as people are interested in those as well. Uh, to, to your last point, I know every investor is different, and obviously you're not here to uh, offer investment advice, but high level, how do you think ARK ETFs should be used in a portfolio? You mentioned the Fed maybe scaring investors into, uh, you know, non-innovation stocks, but do you view uh, ARC ETFs as satellite holdings, or do you believe investors should replace, say, their core S&P 500 exposure with an ETF like ARKK? Well, I think there's there's two ways to think about it. One, I think that um, that um, innovation ETFs like, like ARC are, are actually um, good risk completion strategies for core portfolios. As in, I described the, the um, you know, the the rail exposure you may have and, and the way in which holding onto that innovation name actually um, helps to protect you against the downside of the fixed asset that's indebted that's in, in the core portfolio. There's a lot of examples like that. Um, you know, existing cancer franchises are under threat. Retail bank branches are under threat. And so uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense to um, kind of risk complete your portfolio with some meaningful exposure, and I mean, on the order of 10% to innovation um, to, to, to basically give you the call option in case uh, innovation happens in the way that we anticipate. Um, there's also, I think, a lot of people that have exposure to um, kind of the NASDAQ 100 to QQQ that, um, that think that gives them enough innovation exposure, but what does it expose them to? It exposes them to Basically, mega cap tech, which we can see is actually under threat from the kinds of companies we're invested in. I think that um, OpenAI's um, uh, um, natural language releases directly threaten Google search. And Meta Platforms has clearly been eaten alive by, by TikTok. Uh, and then it exposes them to a lot of non-innovation companies. So, uh, you know, um, um, I think it's Dollar General is in there. Uh, one of these dollar stores is in there, and that's at an all-time high. And, and so you're not actually getting exposure to, to the innovation that's going to work over the course of the business cycle, in my view. Uh, and so you can take whatever exposure you had in that and, and, and kind of replace it with a more concentrated innovation exposure. And I think that's probably 
tactically astute given where we are in the cycle and, and how severely the more directly exposed innovation names have sold off and strategically wise given um, kind of that we believe that, that this more disruptive technologies are going to take more share over the course of the business cycle. So um, I think that, you know, our, our very top line view is we think that innovation is going to go from less than 10% of equity market cap to more than half by the end of this business cycle, at least the innovation platforms that we focus on. Uh, and so y- you don't want to be short in that environment. And, and I think a lot of people are unintentionally short because of um, exposure to disruption in their core portfolios. Brett, just a couple minutes left here. One thing I'm curious about, I know ARC greatly values transparency. So you obviously disclose ETF holdings on a daily basis. And I would say there's more to it than that, in that you're sharing research and financial models out on social media. You're engaging with people. I'm just curious, how does that play into the management of the portfolios? And I'll also add, I, I mentioned the uh, the media coverage that ARC gets, which is uh, very robust. I'm just curious if that plays any role at all in terms of how you manage portfolios, because the media is all over every single move that's made because you're sharing it out on uh, social media and other uh, mediums. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, it gives us a really unfair advantage that we um, kind of operate in the open, at least as much as we're able to, um, from certainly the research and, and investment side. And and people misunderstand that, but there's being able to uh, react in real time to um, the the Tesla semi-delivery and, and share our analysis of what we think the unit economics are, or to um, chat GPT, the new um, AI natural language bot and, and play with it and, and share some of that um, kind of our expectations for both how much um, AI compute demand it's going to drive and, and why we think it's going to. Um, that provides us with uh, real-time feedback from experts in the field who will point out where they think we're wrong and um, encourage us to, to probe in directions where they think there is more opportunity. And so and that generalizes across our entire analyst team, you know, that we are like publishing open source models, that we are putting our research out there so that our, our worst critics can poke holes in it, makes us better at forecasting and understanding the future tra- trajectory of the technology that we're focused on. And so um, that, and I think you have to, because technology is moving so quickly and because these technologies are, are themselves platforms of innovation, I really think it's it, something that's a strategic requirement to to um, to successfully underwrite and invest in technologies is to be in constant learning mode. And there's no better way to learn than to be in dialogue with all of the practitioners who are trying to build atop these technologies. Um, so that media attention, um, we you know we cultivate it specifically so we can be a more powerful research and investment organization. And so far. You know, that's proved to be extremely valuable for us in terms of our ability to stay at the the frontier of technology and understand what's likely to work and what's not likely to work in in, um, the economic world. Well, Brett, really enjoyed the conversation this week. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, We'll definitely have to do this again, but uh, so great to connect. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. That was Brett Winton, Chief Futurist at ARK Invest. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. I'm now joined by Sylvia Jablonski, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Defiance ETFs, who currently offers six ETFs, nearly a billion dollars in assets. That includes their most recent launch back in September, the daily short 
Digitizing the Economy ETF, ticker symbol IBIT, I-B-I-T, which is what I would call an inverse blockchain ETF, which I'm sure we'll get into. Sylvia is now uh, joining me from New York. Sylvia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we are going to talk a little bit about IBIT, but before we do that, I was looking at your uh, ETF lineup, and I'll tell you, it's unique. So you have a 5G (laughs) ETF, a quantum computing ETF, a hydrogen ETF, a uh, cruise hotels and airlines ETF, and then a uh, digital revolution ETF, which has a fantastic uh, ticker symbol, by the way, NFTs. Uh, But to start, for people unfamiliar with Defiance, how are you attempting to position the firm in the ETF market? I mean, is the idea here to really go after the thematic ETF segment? Yeah, great question. So it's it's certainly partially that. So one of the one of the things that we do is we look at existing technologies, existing classic ETF products, um, some of the stock select sector indices, for example, that exist, and and we try to think about what those stocks and what those themes will look like in the future. So there is this element of thematics to it, um, but there's also an element of trying to create products that are, you know, like the products that we have today or have had for the last couple of decades, you know, transparent, transparent, sort of pure in, in their intentions in terms of what we're trying to give exposure to and, you know, products that are essentially going to disrupt the way we sort of live, work and play. And, um, if you think about just the ETFs that we mentioned, it's, it's sort of easier to describe it when you go through them, right? So if, if you look at kind of the classic communications um, ETF products out there, they might include companies like Meta. They might include, um, you know, various media companies or kind of like old school um, telecommunication equipment companies and things like that. But we think that the future of communication is 5G, right? So we'll look at the names that tend to support that theme. Um, if, if tech is sort of tech as we know it today, well, quantum computing is the tech of the future. If um, internal combustion engines are the way that we operate vehicles, airplanes, ships, things like that today, well, hydrogen might be an alternative energy source and so on. So that's how we try to think about it. There's $60 trillion of wealth going from baby boomers to, um, you know, sort of Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, and beyond. And I don't think that they're going to want the same products that, um, you know, our grandparents have been allocated to for the last four decades. So we really try to think about um, thematic products as, as a way to capture disruptive trends, but also to provide purity so that investors know what they're actually getting. I, I'm really curious um, when we talk about thematics and the role in a portfolio, I'd love to know how, how you view these. And I want to color that just a little bit with one of my favorite ways to think about thematics, which actually comes courtesy of uh, Morningstar's Ben Johnson. So l- l- let me lay this out. He says that thematic ETFs are basically trifecta bets, where you have to get three bets correct in order to have success. So he says you have to pick a winning theme, you have to pick an ETF that actually captures that theme, and then you have to get the timing right. And his point is that um, all of that can can be difficult, right, to get all of those correct. But if you do, then, of course, the payoff can certainly be worth it. I- any thoughts on that line of thinking? And just how do you think investors should approach thematic ETFs uh, overall? You know, I think that I think that there's there's, you know, definitely some some sense to his his comments there. Um, but what I would argue was is that it's impossible. It, you're right. It is sort of impossible to to pick the right theme at the right time because it's impossible to time the market. So he he's absolutely right about that. So what I would say is that you know advisors have to invest in themes and disruptive ETFs um, in in areas that they believe will grow. So one area, for example, that I think a lot of advisors are interested in investing in. Um, is essentially innovation and the technology that will lead innovation forward. So we we know and we have tangible evidence that um, artificial intelligence is is something that is going to um, power a lot of a lot of different like sort of sectors and projects that we have in our economy. We know that um, electric vehicles require um, certain amounts of technology. We know that quantum computing, processing big data, connecting rural and urban America. You know, having precise uh, technology for for defense, um, it, things like this exist, and and they're growing and they're innovating. So the investment in the technology to support those themes, I think, 
are good places to kind of park your money, but know that you'll be, you know, essentially parked, right, until these companies start to generate revenue and um, until we get past this market, which is just wholly unfriendly to, to tech and growth at the moment. Um, so I do think that, they, you know, there are areas of disruptive uh, technologies that, that actually make sense. But to Ben's point, I think that there are a lot of products out there that are sort of cute, right? Um, and, and they may or may not work out. So, so going back to the idea of like how we think about creating products, uh, I think if you think about classic staple sector exposures, you know, whether it is like staples, retail, consumer discretion, whatever it might be, defense, energy, what is what? Who, which companies will dictate the future um, in in terms of being the top equities in those sectors? And, and then try to find thematic ETFs that focus on those names that right now seem a little bit you know far out there, but will probably become you know the staple large caps of the future. So that's how I think about it. But also in terms of just talking to our clients, you know, some of them will say, "I have five percent of my portfolio that I just allocate to almost." kind of like Ben lays it out to a couple of good ideas and and hopefully some of them play out. And then some of them are more strategic about it. And they say things like, you know, my, my client has a grandson who really believes in quantum computing. So, uh, you know, along with his QQQ exposure, I, I throw in a quantum ETF to complement that. Um, other clients will actually use it as their energy allocation, you know, so for, for things like carbon, for things like hydrogen, for things like solar, you know, there are a lot of companies out there that are really going in that direction. Um, so it could be, you know, a, a, a classic sector um, allocation within a model, or it could be, you know, a 5% sort of um, view that you're willing to take a gamble on. So it, it is certainly everything in between. Okay, so speaking of creating uh, new products, as I mentioned, in September, you rolled out the Defiance Daily Short Digitizing the Economy ETF, ticker IBIT, which is different than the other ETFs you were offering. And this is the first inverse blockchain ETF. Uh, what made you decide to launch this one? Which I, I will say it's been pretty good timing, given everything going on in the uh, the crypto space. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is actually the best kept secret, I think, uh, on the market right now. The the performance of this ETF has been stellar since launch, um, uh, and and I think you know uh, not a whole lot of people actually know that it exists. So the way that we the way that we went about this ETF is we saw that um, you know people are essentially looking to expose to hedge their exposure or to take a short view on anything from Bitcoin, you know, different cryptocurrencies, NFTs or the actual equities that are related to those those um, digital currencies. So, you know, ProShares came out with this awesome ETF and they short Bitcoin. So then that's w one way to get about it. But we thought, well, you know, so a lot of people hold Bitcoin, a lot of large institutions hold Bitcoin, and then great, they have that solution. But what about the investor that holds Coinbase and Robinhood and MicroStrategy and um, Block and Galaxy? And, you know, some of these companies that are actually listed equities but have a good chunk of their revenue um, and their user base linked to things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, blockchain technologies and things like that. Well, along with Bitcoin, you know, falling from that 70% level, um, FTX, you know, scandal, if, if that's what we're sort of calling it now, um, Terra Luna, all of these, you know, bankruptcies and dry ups and, and now this huge amount of just sort of like risk off sentiment that is, that is, um, um, you know, kind of riddling that, whole ecosystem and everything related to it, well, IBIT now gives you access to, to short the equities that are, you know, sort of most linked to, to these themes. So, um, yeah, so you have, you know, you have an inverse Bitcoin ETF to short the cryptocurrency itself. But if you're looking to sort of hedge or short the stocks like Robinhood, Coinbase, you know, et cetera, that are, that are you know, essentially getting um, crushed, whether it's because of high growth in tech getting crushed or because of their relationship to Bitcoin and, and blockchain technology, IBIT, IBIT exists. So it's either a hedge or it's, it's a short view. And, and I think, you know, we're starting, we're starting to see trades trickle in, I think, when, when it pops up on the radar and people can kind of see the performance of it since inception. But, uh, but that's really why it's there. And Sylvia, just briefly explain what's going on underneath the hood here. How exactly are you getting the uh, inverse exposure? Yeah, sure. So it's it's very it's very easy. It's on, on a daily basis. We're inverse um, it, it, the the funds that essentially make up the ET, amplified ETF block. So it's it's being inverse or short companies like Coinbase, Robinhood, Galaxy, MicroStrategy, 
Um, we have an, a derivative agreement in place with BNP Paribas, and on a daily basis, we rebalance to be negative one um, multiplied by the performance of the underlying index that we track, which is um, short amplified blocks uh, ETF. Okay, and I mentioned earlier that you do offer the Defiance Digital Revolution ETF, again, ticker NFTs, NFTZ, uh, which I would say this is essentially uh, long exposure to the blockchain or crypto space. You can offer some additional color there, but I guess two questions. How would you compare uh, that ETF to something like BLOK, Block? And then, obviously, you do now offer the ability for investors to get exposure in either direction to uh, the, the blockchain or crypto space through iBid and NFTs. I'm just curious, do you have any strong opinions or views on this space, or do you just uh, try to stay agnostic? Yeah, I mean, I ha so, so on a company level, we try to stay agnostic, and we try to provide clients with the tools that, you know, that express sort of their view and the direction of the trade that they would like to take. So, you know, with crypto, blockchain, and all, all that, I, I think you have very polarizing views on the topic, right? You have everything from, like, a Mike Novogratz to a Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger who, who are just, you know, think it's just sort of criminal and it's going to, to go poof, right? So so those guys might like iBit, but um, a, a Novogratz might like an NFTZ. So we just like to provide the tools to give you exposure. So, the you know, the thought behind NFTZ was, there is this going, there's going to be this huge amount of growth in blockchain technology, smart contracts, digital assets. And the, the components that go into that will be um, non-fungible tokens. You know, they will be semiconductor stocks. They will be companies that represent blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies. So the goal here was to create a, a long um, product that gives you exposure to sort of all of those different, different facets of the marketplace. So... Um, it's, I, I think it's a little bit more concentrated perhaps than block on blockchain technology on, um, you know, companies that are involved with NFTs, companies that have a, a strong tie to cryptocurrency, um, companies that sort of use NFTs like a DraftKings, for example, um, is in there, GameStop is in there. Uh, and then, you know, kind of the crypto mining company. So this is really more about the, the build out of blockchain technology. And um, in terms of my own personal view, so, you know, I, I am actually a big believer in blockchain technology. And I think that it's going to play a huge role in our future. I think it'll do things like, you know, you, you sort of see BlackRock getting into it and JP Morgan. And they think, you know, if you think about, you know, how, how, how much easier it would be to just to settle a trade, right, via a smart contract. You sort of put in all the components and the trade settles sort of on its own. You can kind of eliminate, you know, um, s several different groups within an industry, the checks and balances that are required to, to kind of manage that trade settlement. Um, it could, you know, it could do things like better equip companies, shipping companies to, to more efficiently deliver goods. So, you know, during COVID, you had these issues where ships were just lined up at ports for, months and months on, on end if you had a smart contract that, that sets everything from, you know, the, the agreement on the goods and the services, the payment for the goods and services, but also, you know, the flow, delivery time, arrival schedule, things like that. If this is all run on technology um, or on blockchain technology through the use of smart contracts, you know, there is a way that it really could help our economy evolve. And if you think about some of the issues that we have, you know, not being able to find workers to fill the, the, the two jobs to every one person type of thing, you know, technology has to play a role in, in the digitalization of, of our society across various sectors and things like that. So, you know, my view is that there is a place for all of this. It, it is absolutely being creamed and hammered. And I, you know, I'll, I'll, t I'll, t I'll take that one. But I think that if you're a long-term believer in this stuff, you know, buying, buying some of these companies or cryptocurrencies, you know, sort of dollar cost averaging in a little bit with a very long time frame in mind um, is something that might pay off in the future. But if you ask me, you know, sort of this week, next month, next couple of months, you know, potentially th through the end of 2023, I think IBIT has a better shot of performing than NFTZ, de NFTZ does um, just because they're getting crushed. <laughs> No, I think all of that is uh, very well said. I mean, I, I think you know, maybe it's 10 years off or 15 years off in the future. We'll see the tokenization of ETFs and, and other securities. I may have a very uh, different yeah, looking podcast <laughs> in 10 years. But uh, Sylvia, so great to uh, connect. Congratulations on the uh, the new launch with iBid and best of luck to you on the entire lineup moving forward. Thank you for joining me.
Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. I appreciate it. That was Sylvia Jablonski, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Defiance ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. Next week, actually speaking of iShares, I'll be joined by Bob Hum, who is U.S. Head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock. We're going to talk growth versus value, minimum volatility, and look at factor investing in 2023. Should be an interesting conversation. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Hey folks, Dave Nodding from Vetify here. You know, as a financial futurist, I'm supposed to be looking ahead. And what I'm looking ahead to is the second annual exchange ETF conference. It's right around the corner. We'll be back in Miami Beach, Florida, February 5th through February 8th. It's going to be the largest gathering of financial advisors in the whole community. We're hard at work making sure it's going to be an experience you're not going to forget with incredible content, great networking opportunities, and most importantly, a chance to really connect with a community of advisors as real people. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be about you. We had a great first year in 2022. We're super excited to show you how we're taking this whole idea of an event to the next level next year in 2023. We want to hang out with ETF Prime listeners in particular. So go ahead and head to exchangeetf.com and you can use the code PRIME to get a discounted advisor ticket. And that's good until the end of the year. So we hope you'll join us. Thanks.